So how deeply do you want to know God? How fully do you want to experience Him and sense His power in your life? How willing are you then to submit yourself entirely to His plans? Let me ask you, what's your plan? What's your plan? I bet you have one or more than one. Plans for your marriage, plans for your family, plans on how to raise and educate your children, plans for your next vacation, plans for Christmas, even plans for the coming holiday. And I will bet that their good plan, specifically designed and strategically timed for your benefit. Am I right? Now, there's nothing wrong with that. No condemnation. But what happens when those plans are abruptly interrupted? What then? What is your response in that situation? Would you be willing to put your plans in the shredder this morning if it meant that you would meet God more intimately without your plan? Would you be willing to do that? Some years ago, I preached a couple of Christmas messages entitled Divine Interruptions focusing primarily on how Jesus sometimes interrupts and intrudes into our lives unexpectedly and totally upsetting our preconceived personal plans. And the test of these so-called intrusions being whether or not we will conform to his will or tenaciously hold on to ours with white-knuckled abandon. I did two messages in that particular collection, one of which highlighted Mary, and her reaction to the announcement that she, as a young virgin, would bear and give birth to a son, the son of the Most High God, conceived not through her beloved and betrothed, but by the power of the Holy Spirit which would come upon her. In my opinion, Mary is the quintessential model of how to respond when God breaks into your life abruptly and unexpectedly. It's been one of my favorite Christmas messages to preach. The second message in that series zeroed in on Jesus himself and his remarkable entrance into this world as a divine intruder, turning everything in his creation on its self-focused ear. Now, throughout the Bible, there are a multitude of accounts depicting a variety of characters and responses to God's divine interruptions. But today, as we celebrate Advent's second Sunday, which carries the theme of love, if you haven't figured it out yet. I was prompted to revisit a much-ignored, almost-forgotten figure in one of history's most significant moments. Joseph, the human stepfather of Jesus. But talk about an unscheduled intrusion, God breaking through in Joseph's life. Talk about what would be for most of us an extremely unwelcome change in our five-year plan. Joseph, in some ways, even more than any of the other characters in the Christmas narrative, is revealed in the scriptures as an unsung model of obedience, submission, and commitment to God above all things. 
We're going to unpack that. Joseph exhibited and models the power and the impact of immediacy and obedience, which I believe stemmed from his immense love of God and his intense love of Mary. Joseph was truly a man of faith, driven by hope and prompted by love. And through those character virtues, he shows us not only the influence, but also the unforeseen consequences of simple obedience to the command of God. When preaching on Mary, I quoted someone who said these words, God is an intruder. God encroaches, he presumes, he invades, he infringes, he crashes the party, he tears aside the curtains, he throws open locked doors, hits the light switch in dark rooms. But friend, most of all and most silently and most miraculously, God on one silent night intruded into the womb of a virgin. He stormed Satan's kingdom on Christmas Eve in Bethlehem. And this is why all is calm and all is bright in our hearts. He has invaded our hearts. And he has taken up residence in our very bodies. He boldly intrudes into our sin, calling it what it is, challenging you and me to leave it all behind. And friend, I am so glad, I'm so glad Jesus came to earth that night, that silent night. Jesus has invaded the realm of darkness, and this means you and I can sleep in heavenly peace. Those words were Johnny Erickson Tata's words. And they continue to ring in my ears long after I first read them. God is an intruder. Throughout history, he has revealed himself as the divine intruder who makes it his business to break into people's lives in astonishing and unexpected ways, often unwelcome. His intrusions into the lives of those he chooses, however, more often than not, changes them absolutely forever, yielding blessings beyond measure and accomplishing purposes far beyond our short-sighted human comprehension. Is it possible that he has interrupted your life as of late? Unexpected, unplanned, and quite possibly even unrecognized? Is he interrupting you even right now? I believe that God is still in the business of interrupting the lives of his children today. Incognito, God in disguise, dramatically leading them into his perfect will and patiently growing them into the people that he wants them to become. Are you one of those? Am I? And are we willing to be? I love Proverbs 16, 9 quoted it so many times. Wish I could actually say that I am overjoyed by it. <laughs> but I am overjoyed by it, really, at the heart of it. Proverbs 16, 9. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Sounds like interruption to me. 
It's a fancy way of saying you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. As one author put it, that's just another way of saying that when your plans are detoured and redirected, you find out who's really charting the course in this life. Who's charting your course this morning? In this very moment, is it God? And are you willing, like Joseph, to quietly and completely submit to his plan? Are you willing to learn and embrace the truth that Joseph's life declares with deafening clarity, life's interruptions are God's invitations? You say that with me? Life's interruptions are God's invitations. Divine interruptions should not be seen as roadblocks to our human plans, but viewed rather as God's divine invitation to embrace his perfect plan. Amen? That's what the life of Joseph calls out to us to learn from the pages of Matthew's gospel. Turn in your Bibles, if you have them with you, to Matthew chapter 1 and verse 18. Let me read a few verses. Follow with me as I read. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. When he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and she shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. Now the story shifts as we cut away to another scene in chapter 2, verses 1 to 12 in which the lying, conniving, deceitful, paranoid, and tyrannical Herod sets in motion a plan to find out the whereabouts of this infant king's birth. In order to destroy him, yet another divine interruption into Joseph's life interrupts that evil plan. Look at Matthew chapter 2 and verse 13. Now, when they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt. He remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet out of Egypt I called my son. And we have another scene change. Okay? Clearly spiritual war is being waged in the spiritual realm that is intruding into the earthly realm, right? As you read this narrative, it's like a movie. 
scene shifting back and forth. And in verses 16 to 18, Herod goes off the deep end on a rampage and annihilates every male child under two years of age in the area of Bethlehem. Then two more divine interruptions lead Joseph to move in perfect obedience and protect the child. Pick it up in verse 19 with me. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. You getting a pattern here? You seeing a pattern here? And said, get up, take the child and his mother and go into the land of Israel for those who sought the child's life are dead. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Then after being warned by God in a dream, if I was Joseph, I'd never close my eyes at night. <laughs> he left for the regions of Galilee and came and lived in a city called Nazareth. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. I want you to notice the pattern here, if you haven't already, in Joseph's three encounters, okay? First of all, there was supernatural divine revelation. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, right? Secondly, there was a divine commission. Joseph was given a purposeful command and instructions on what to do next. Thirdly, there was a divine implication. And what is that implication? That scripture, i.e. God's perfect will, might be fulfilled. Note chapter 2, verse 17, where it says something a little different. In verse 17, it says, Then what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. Not that it might, have, might, might be, but it was fulfilled. And then fourthly, in this pattern on Joseph's life, we see a personal application that Jesus' ministry here is accomplished and magnified, not Joseph's. Okay, we're looking forward now. Because of Joseph's obedience, Jesus' ministry was going to be fulfilled. Wasn't about Joseph, was it? Not at all. Jesus was glorified in all of this, not Joseph. That's the eternal repercussion. That's the last thing, okay? The personal application was that Joseph immediately obeyed with unfettered obedience. That was Joseph's response. So here in Matthew's chapters 1 and 2, a couple of brief references in Luke chapter 2 and 3, and an allusion to Joseph in Matthew 13, 55, that's basically everything we have regarding Jesus' earthly father, Joseph, in the New Testament. That's it. That's all there is. A handful of verses, and in every case, it's not about him. It's never about him it ends up being about Jesus every single time. The divine interruptions in Joseph's life opened up a powerful invitation to be part of Jesus' life. Over and over and over again. And not once in any 
context, get this now, not once in any context do we find any recorded words of Joseph. None. The earthly father of Jesus, stepfather of Jesus. Not a single word. None. We do know that he bestowed upon the child the name Jesus, so he, we know he talked. In response to the angel's command, yet in every scripture we find Joseph, he's totally silent, takes a back seat, and yet he's absolutely and totally obedient to God. No argumentation, no fanfare, just gets up and does what he's told to do. And that is the crowning virtue of Joseph's life. In almost every context in which we find him active, it is in reference to his obedience. Emerson once made the statement, what you do speaks so loudly that I cannot hear what you say. Taken with a positive spin, that precisely describes what we know of Joseph's life. What he did spoke volumes more than what he said. Because we don't have any recorded words. What he did just screams off the pages of Scripture. He is the epitome of immediacy in obedience. As one man put it, he is remarkably simple in his obedience, but he is simply remarkable in what he was willing to do, hanging everything on a word from God which on the surface of it seemed to be absurd. I'm not sure if he knew it at the outset, but he certainly learned it, that life's most unwelcome interruptions are often God's most blessed invitations. And because of that, Joseph's faith and character emerges as remarkably simple and simply remarkable. And that's something that I need to learn, and probably most of you do as well. How? Ask yourself a handful of questions about your own decisions in life measured according to the pattern of Joseph's behavior, okay? So this, all the points in this sermon are going to consist of a personal question. Here's the first one. In light of God's divine revelation, are my plans interruptible? Are my plans interruptible? Again, you'll find that in Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 21. Okay, so um, I just read them. I don't have to read them again, but I, I will read verse 19. Well, let me just read them again. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Okay, crazy thing that's never happened before. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man, watch all the little nuances here, and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She'll bear a son. You will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, in verse 19, we read that Joseph was a righteous man. The Greek term, dikaios, means upright, virtuous, someone who always did the right thing by God. That's what it means. 
In other words, he was a man after God's heart, okay? The Hebrew word for righteous, as you can well imagine, has an extensive and rich history behind it. Now, because Joseph was Jewish, understanding that term, righteous, is essential to understanding Joseph's response to this divine interruption. Following me? So I make no excuses for my indebtedness now to other scholars and authors because they've done a lot more study on this kind of thing than I have. But I'm, I'm quoting, I'm going to be quoting much of what you are about to hear surrounding this concept of righteousness because it is indeed rich. The Hebrew word for a righteous man is the word sadiq. Okay? Joseph, according to this verse, was a sadiq. He was a righteous man. That's super important. Don't gloss over that. It means that he was known for his uncompromising obedience to the Torah, the law of Moses. In other words, as one writer said, Joseph stayed away from unclean food. That's one thing, right? So he didn't mix with the wrong kinds of people. He didn't keep his carpentry shop open on the Sabbath to make a few extra drachmas. He was a sadiq. That was essential to who he was. Everybody knew this about Joseph. Consequently, no one was inviting Joseph to meet them for bacon and eggs at the local cafe with tax collectors and prostitutes on Saturday mornings. It just wasn't happening for Joseph. In conduct, character, ethics, and commitment, both to God and the law, he was righteous. Sadiq. But all of a sudden, Joseph's life, as was Mary's, is radically interrupted by God. A divine interruption. Mary, his betrothed, the woman he loved and was engaged to, is found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Now, nobody would know this. We have it written in Scripture. But who else would know this? Okay? We believe the Bible. We have the record. Joseph and the rest of the world knew nothing of the sort at this point. Not at that point. So now Joseph is a tzaddik, righteous man, with a problem. He's facing a major dilemma. As Philip Yancey describes it, nine months of awkward explanations, the lingering scent of scandal, unquote. Whoever the father is, Joseph knows it's not him. And Nazareth is a small town, just like Fayette, where everybody knows everybody's business, right? Everybody knows everybody's business. And, but betrothal was binding, unlike today's American engagements. In essence, it was marriage without sexual activity. That's betrothal. 
during the betrothal period. The bride and the groom did not live together or have much social contact, but the woman lived with her parents and the man usually with his for up to a year. So they were separated. The one-year waiting period was to demonstrate faithfulness. Mary and Joseph were in the midst of this waiting period in their betrothal time when she was all, all of a sudden found to be with child. She had been faithful and she was a virgin according to verse 20 and verse 23. But who in the world would have believed that? Would you believe it today? Put yourself in Joseph's place and forget about the serene nativity paintings and figurines that are sitting on your mantle. Okay? Your fiancé is pregnant and your whole world is rot to the core. It's not you. Up until now, your reputation revolves around one thing, your commitment to God, your commitment to the Torah. What the Word says you do. This is your life. You're a tzaddik, period. Joseph was agonizing, as one man writes. He says the Torah has some clear instructions about what to do to somebody in Mary's condition. A section in Deuteronomy 22 covers marriage violation. If a woman pledged to be married is unfaithful, this is what it says in Deuteronomy 22, 21. Quote, she shall be brought to the door of her father's house and there the men of her town shall stone her to death. She has done a disgraceful thing in Israel by being promiscuous while still in her father's house. You must purge this evil from among you, unquote. That's Deuteronomy 22, 21. The Torah was clear. Joseph's reputation as a tzaddik was on the line. His fellow Sadakim would have told him this sin must be publicly exposed and punished but Joseph couldn't bring himself to do this. His righteous label, his righteous title, the title Tzaddik was on the line. Think about that now. Verse 19, Joseph being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. Here's where Joseph's righteousness strikes directly at my heart and yours. What do we do? Is Joseph's reaction our reaction when people that threaten our reputation or cast doubt on our credibility among fellow Christians? What do we do? Do we act like Joseph? Do we resolve not to publicly put them to shame? Or do we do our level best to point the finger, spread the slander, protect our own reputation no matter what it costs, no matter who gets hurt in the process? Joseph brings to light yet another facet of righteousness and presses us to ask the personal question, is there something we're missing here? Which raises the next question, is my character irreproachable? In verse 19, we run into an interesting grammatical construction. Now, I'm going to get academic on you here, okay? Some of this research. It's called a circumstantial participle. You don't need to remember that. But this kind of participle can be translated in maybe nine different ways, depending on the context or the circumstances. How we understand it depends upon the context in which it's used. 
You've heard me say that before. Simple principle, context determines meaning, always, right? The question is, how do you translate that circumstantial participle, being righteous, being righteous? How do you translate it? You can translate it as a cause because he was righteous. He didn't want to put her away. Or the idea here would be because he's righteous, he doesn't want to cause a ruckus. But the New Testament scholar Don Hagner says most likely the best translation is this, quote, although he was righteous, although he was a tzaddik, a righteous man, he didn't want to cause a scandal. In the old system, righteousness would have demanded that she be exposed. A righteous man would not hesitate to do it, and yet Joseph hesitated. He couldn't bring himself to say the words, to go public, so he decides to divorce her quietly, the text says. Michael Card, the musician, and William Lane share a beautiful insight in the booklet, The Life. They wrote, already Joseph seemed to know another higher law, the law of love. The law of love that his adoptive son would actually come to reveal to the world. This is the kind of man God had chosen to care for Mary and Jesus, his only son. Verse 20. When he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Love that. And the word considered here is a very significant word. It refers to deep and intense thought. Now think about that. Think of how you'd be wrestling if it were you. It means that Joseph seriously wrestled with this dilemma and what was the right thing to do. John Ortberg writes these words. He says, why did God make Joseph wait till after he had to think and struggle with all this stuff? You ever wonder that? I wonder that all the time. Because I struggle with all kinds of things. Every single major event in your life that you're going to end up doing to obey God is going to probably end up being a dilemma for you. You're going to struggle with it. Should I, shouldn't I? What's the right direction? Is it possible, he says, that anxiety removal is not God's number one goal for Joseph or you? Is it possible that in getting the world turned upside down and having to struggle between what he thought a righteous man ought to do and his longing to show compassion to this young girl, maybe Joseph was being prepared by God to come to a new understanding of what righteousness really is? Is it possible there's a ministry of disequilibrium that God is allowing to take place in Joseph's life so he'll come to a new era of growth in his own? Is it possible that he's doing the same thing to you right now? Maybe you're experience, experiencing a divine interruption in your life. You don't know what to do about it. And you're stuck between a rock and a hard place. If you're confused or disoriented or uncertain about something, maybe it's not because you've done something wrong. Maybe you're about to grow. 
Maybe what you need to do is wait on God and trust God's going to do something in your life that you don't even know about yet. Isn't that exciting? Verse 20 and 21. So we just read verse 20, 21. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Don't you love it when, when God reveals the answer to your dilemma ahead of time? Doesn't always do that. Mercifully, the angel appears to Joseph and explains the unexplainable. This is good news and it's bad news, right? It's the good news, bad news thing. The good news is that Mary has not been unfaithful. Yay, all right. Joseph can sleep now. The bad news is, who's he going to tell? Who's going to believe him? And Joseph stands at the crossroads of a major decision, a choice between self-protection and selfless obedience, which begs us to ask a tough question of ourselves. Question number two, or number three. In light of God's divine commission, is my obedience incontestable? Look at verse 24. Joseph woke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Is my obedience incontestable like Joseph's? Is yours? Oh, to embody the kind of righteousness that Joseph had. Amen? The kind that goes beyond the letter to the Spirit. He didn't deny the truth. He determined to take on Mary's shame as if it was his own and to do the right thing. You know what he's giving up? He's giving up that designation of being a tzaddik to the community around him. Never would he be looked at the same again. This is the love that would protect Mary and her unborn son and provide for their needs. Looking at Joseph, there is one thing we can learn without question. It is completely possible to obey God with unflinching immediacy because Joseph exhibits it here. There is no recorded denial here. He didn't remonstrate with God like Moses did, right? There's no hint of doubt in Joseph's mind that's recorded. No argument for resistance. Only unquestionable obedience. His obedience was incontestable. Joseph exhibited what Nietzsche called or referred to as a long obedience in the same direction. I love that phrase. I've used it so often from this pulpit. And I hope it's something that I can say one day that it's characteristic of my life and yours. A long obedience in the same direction. Friedrich Nietzsche wrote these words. He said, the essential thing in heaven and earth, you, it's hard to believe that he wrote these words, but he did. The essential thing in heaven and earth is that there should be a long obedience in the same direction. There, thereby results, and has always resulted in the long run, something which has made life worth living. I can't even believe that guy wrote those words. It is this long obedience in the same direction, Eugene Peterson said, which the mood of the world does so much to discourage. It does, doesn't it? 
It does. The world says, do your own thing. Buck authority. Raise your fist. I have rights. Don't tell me what to do. We don't get that attitude from Joseph, do we? In contrast, Joseph left us an example that we would do well to follow. The quiet beauty of Joseph's long obedience in God's direction speaks volumes against the pride that we often hold on to and the rebellious nature of our own fallen heart. It points to the wisdom of taking God at his word and believing that God has no process without good as his purpose. That he is sovereign and we are not and that our self-determination is nothing but folly. 1 John chapter 3, verse 5 says this, By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Next question. In light of my personal application, is my response acceptable? I'll let you chew on that one. No explanation needed. Next question. In light of the divine implication... May it be that God's purpose is unforeseeable. That's a good one to ponder. Could it be that God's purpose for this thing I'm going through right now, whatever it may be, or what God's asking me to do that I can't figure out why he would ever ask me to do it, could it be that God's purpose is unforeseeable to me or to anyone? Verse 22. Now all this took place, what? to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Now, Joseph, the righteous man that he was, probably knew this verse in the scripture. Do you think for one moment that he applied that to this situation in his life? You think he understood that? This is phenomenal to me. One small step of obedience to God in Joseph's obscure life led to one giant gift for the salvation of mankind, right? It's true. Let me ask you a question. You know, read those words again. Joseph's obedience resulted in Scripture being fulfilled. God with us. The Savior of the world coming. Let me ask you, what one act of obedience to God are you resisting? What unforeseeable results are you derailing if you don't obey? You ever thinking about that? Think about that in your head. Have you ever looked at it that way before? Have you ever considered the possibility that your obedient response to God right now, whatever d d dilemma that you're facing, will result in the fulfillment of certain scriptures? Why shouldn't it happen to Joseph? Why shouldn't it happen to you? You say, well, I'm not that important to God. You think Joseph thought he was that important to God? Or Mary? Or the shepherds? Herod probably did. <laughs> you see what happened to him. How, how could you know 
that your obedience will not play an important piece in God's prophetic plan. How do you know? I submit to you that every obedient response we have to God's clearly revealed will results in the fulfillment of one piece of his ultimate plan for human history. You are a part of his eternal plan. And so am I. When the angel announced the birth of Jesus to Joseph, he said, his name is Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. I read the backstory of a prisoner in Wisconsin who had been reading a Bible that was given to him. The oldest of five children, he came from a single parent family and seeking self-esteem and acceptance, he joined a street gang as a young man. When he dropped out of school in the ninth grade, he could not read or he couldn't, and he could not write. He got into serious trouble when he was 17. He was arrested, tried, and convicted of first-degree murder. 17. Sentenced to life in prison. He had been behind bars for 19 years. Okay? 19 years. Longer than he'd been alive before he committed or was charged with the crime. This was his comment in a letter to the chaplain. Quote, many had given up on me, but God never did. I was told that I would never amount to anything, but God says otherwise. I was told that I would find death in prison, but instead I found eternal life, unquote. Now comes the rest of the story. Investigators later discovered DNA and other fingerprint evidence that evidently proved that he did not commit the crime. He was completely exonerated and released from prison. Listen to his response regarding how he felt about the 19 years that he spent behind bars where he shouldn't have been there. Quote, I have been so overwhelmed by the grace and mercy of Christ I've been given a wonderful peace that surpasses all understanding. I am absolutely convinced that had I not come to prison, my life would have been completely devastated beyond repair. It's now been 19 years of incarceration, and these years have been the most refreshing and enlightening years of my life. I am truly blessed beyond words, unquote. Only the grace of God can enable a man to talk like that. Life's most unwelcome interruptions are often God's most blessed invitations. Joseph's simple acts of humble obedience in taking Mary as his wife, even with the stigma of her pregnancy hanging over their heads, the repercussions of which ultimately filtered down through the centuries, landed in a prison and impacted this man's soul for eternity. Because of Joseph's obedience, that guy got saved. A lot of links in that chain. But had Joseph not obeyed, what would have happened? Do you think that Joseph realized any more than we do what the result of his obedient actions would accomplish in life? No way. It was his simple, humble acceptance of God's divine interruption and his obedience to God's commission that ultimately resulted in the blessing of not only this prisoner's salvation, but yours, yours, and yours, and mine as well. Can you get a handle on that? Do you get it? 
Will you get it? Will you grab onto it? My friends, you are important to God's plan. I am important to God's plan. Our obedience is essential to God's eternal plan. That truth is not meant to puff us up with pride. It's designed to bow us down in worship. So finally, in light of the eternal repercussions that we just saw, here's the question. Is our perspective staying humble? You know, long obedience has lengthy consequences. A lifetime of them. Every day brings a new set of opportunities for God to interrupt our plans. What will you do with those interruptions? Joseph's family's first few years were not tranquil. As John Bloom put it, they were filled with grueling travel, no steady income, an assassination attempt, two desert crossings on foot with an infant, living in a foreign country, waiting on God for guidance and provisions just in the nick of time. It was difficult. It was expensive. It was time-consuming. It was career-delaying and full of uncertainty. So imagine Joseph had to give up his carpentry career. But it was also God's will, wasn't it? And the unplanned, inefficient detours of our lives, my friends, are planned by God. But God's ways are not our ways because our lives are about him. They're not about us. He is orchestrating far more than we could ever possibly know in every unexpected event in every unexpected delay. I once read that the devil distracts, but God interrupts. That's a profound statement. And for some reason, we fall prey to the one and we grow oblivious to the other. Joseph's life gives us another perspective, that life's interruptions are God's invitations. But beyond that, life's most unwelcome interruptions are often God's most blessed invitations. We close with this. Hanging in the Louvre in Paris is a marvelous painting done around 1640 by Georges Latour. It's called St. Joseph the Carpenter. Here, Joseph is leaning forward, busy drilling a piece of wood with an auger, to the light of a candle held by Christ whose face is radiant in the large flame. Good, good depiction of a Baroque era picture. The arrangement of pieces of wood on the floor evokes a cross and prefigures Christ's sacrifice. The shape of the auger reflects the shape of the cross and the geometry of the wood arrayed on the floor set crosswise to the seated child is a foreshadowing of the crucifixion of Christ. A single strong light source is a central element there. Surrounded by cast shadows, deep ones, and the young Christ is represented, hand-raised, as if in benediction. With the candlelight shining through the flesh as an allegorical reference to Christ as the light of the world. The image evokes much more in my mind, however, 
In Joseph, I see a humble, selfless mentor chosen by God to model so many things to the son who is also his savior, by the way. I love this thought. Imagine what it must have been like to have taught carpentry to the world's creator. No task could have been more humbling or greater. One author said maybe God decided that Jesus, who would be called a friend of sinners, should be raised in a family that knew firsthand what it feels like to be regarded in the spiritual, spiritually second-class category. Maybe part of why Jesus had a heart for unrespectable people is that he was raised by a father who sacrificed his respectability for his own son. Maybe one reason Jesus had compassion on women who were walking scandals is that he knew what it meant for his mom, to his mom, that his father had stuck by her when she was single and pregnant and when all the righteous folks would have said, take a walk. I think of how Jesus, as he was growing up, must have admired his dad's courage. Later, when Joseph was long dead and Jesus was a grown man, he taught in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, unless your righteousness passes that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the old system, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus must have been thinking inside I've seen the better kind of righteousness firsthand because my father was such a man. Maybe God had a reason for this odd, painful, lonely way to start a family. Maybe God still calls people to be willing to die to reputation and status and comfort for the sake of love. Let's pray. Oh, for the sake of love, Lord, what you did in all of your people, through your son Jesus Christ especially, but even as we've seen today through your servant Joseph. Father, help us, Lord God, to keep all these things in mind as we go throughout our lives and may we be able to imitate the example of Joseph and live our lives in long obedience in your direction. I ask it and pray it in the precious name of your son, Jesus, who came to this earth to give his life a ransom for many, to rise again from the dead in order to prove that for all those who put their faith and trust in you, there is eternal life and forgiveness of sins. Thank you for this wonderful gift. For Jesus' sake, I pray. Amen.